0: Hello, I'm Simon Talbot.
1: And I'm Wendy Dean.
0: And this is Moral Matters.
1: This week, we're on episode 10 of season four. So we're going to do a bit of a wrap up. We don't have a guest today. And
0: we have two guests. We have you and me.
1: (laughs) That's true. (laughs) You're my guest and I'm yours. So we're going to talk about something that I've been noticing And turns out Simon has been noticing the same thing.
0: So Wendy and I have been seeing a lot of conversation on social media and conversation between friends and people we know about getting back into a normal world and getting back to our normal activities. But the issue with that is getting back to normal activities doesn't necessarily mean that we're getting back to who we were and what we were doing in the same way.
1: Yeah, so we've been spending the last two years listening pretty closely to what our colleagues are talking about And we were kind of thinking about how do those conversations fit into what we were talking about two years ago and what folks are talking about now and how we're starting to think about emerging from this pandemic and getting back to whatever normal looks like right now.
0: Yeah. So, two years ago, we put out a number of things and spoke about a number of recommendations. So, in Medscape, April the 1st, 2020. One of the things we said was skilled, experienced professionals and support staff are the most valuable asset that any institution possesses. Losing them to COVID-19, whether for the short term or the long term, through death or disillusionment, will take a terrible toll. Doing whatever it takes to keep them safe must be a priority.
1: And we thought it was really important. And remember, we were three weeks into the pandemic at that point, that it was going to be important for us to stick together as a community and to work together to address the crisis of the pandemic, and to think about how we would emerge from it. And then barely a month later, we had the tragedy of Lorna Breen and another healthcare worker in New York also died by suicide around the same time. And that led to more thoughts about what the impact of the pandemic was gonna be on healthcare workers and how we should think about taking care of them in the moment and also what they would need on the other side. So one of the things that we wrote there was denial, minimizing and compartmentalizing are essential strategies for coping with a crisis. We shut down feeling and just keep doing. But as the pressure to act releases, the pressure to feel intensifies. And I think we're sort of at the point of not having to act as
0: much. And so some of the recommendations that we'd spoken about at that stage, some of the things that we could do to actually deal with what at that stage was a very new pandemic but a very acute and serious problem were the following. We spoke about easing up, lightening people's schedules and slightly overstaffing to accommodate the call-outs and the processing that was going on and, frankly, the staff that were unable to work. Checking in with people and, frankly, meaning it, listening to what was going on, and recognizing that in this context, things were not going to be business as usual.
1: Yeah, that failing to prepare properly for the mental health aftermath of the pandemic would be another structural betrayal of frontline healthcare workers. And one of the things that I'm starting to hear a lot from the front lines, from especially emergency room folks and critical care folks, is I thought I was doing okay. And in the last few months, somebody's knocked the pegs out from under me. And what I suspect is happening is that people are starting to reckon with the grief that they have put off.
0: Yeah. I think one of the things that I've said a number of times through this whole pandemic, and certainly the way we're speaking right now is not intended as a, I told you so, but it's this idea that this keeps being said as an unprecedented pandemic, but it's not unpredictable how some of these things would turn out. Yeah, And so that brings us to the situation we're in now, which is just over two years since we were writing about this and talking about it in the height of the pandemic.
1: Right. And it's not an I told you so. It's just a reminder that people are feeling the same things and maybe we need to think about how to address them differently. Right. So three months ago, I think it was in late March of 2022, there were two emergency physicians at George Washington who made similar arguments in The Hill, Janice Blanchard and Guinevere Burke. And one of the things they said was that provider wellness must be addressed at multiple levels and calls to build individual resiliency, as in the Dr. Lorna Breen Act, are important but inherently limited.
0: They said organizational health systems change is also desperately needed.
1: And importantly, that as our country starts to return to our pre-pandemic activities, we cannot continue business as usual for the healthcare profession.
0: And as we read this, I think both of us had the same sort of um, realization that we haven't made as much progress as we might have hoped over that two years, given that our suggestions are pretty much the same as they were two years ago.
1: Yeah. And and part of it is understandable, right? Because we were all trying to survive and it wasn't just the clinicians who are trying to survive, but the administrators also were facing some pretty profound challenges Mm -hmm. to the existence of their hospitals. And some of them haven't survived. The smaller, a lot of smaller hospitals are really in trouble. So it's understandable that taking on these additional tasks might be pretty difficult.
0: Now, Wendy, one of the things that you've spoken to me about is this idea of mortality salience. And so can you tell us a bit more about that?
1: Yeah, so this is something that I think we all know intuitively, but somebody actually put a name on it. And it's this concept that when death is really present, we reconsider our priorities. So the first time I thought about this with real clarity was a TED talk by Rick Elias, who was on the plane that Sully landed on the Hudson. He recounted his thoughts as the plane was going down. And he basically, at that point, Completely reordered his priorities in his life. And for the two years between that crash and his TED talk, he had stuck to that commitment about how he was changing his life, that his family was his priority, that being a dad was the most important thing in the world to him, you know, beyond work, beyond whatever, and that he was no longer interested in being right. He wanted to be happy. And so he stopped fighting with his wife. Like there was nothing that could get him to fight with her because it wasn't worth it. And I think what that said to me was that facing our mortality, and I don't think anybody could really say that they didn't think about it a couple of times over the past two years. But that changes who we are. We are different people than we were when this whole thing started. And that really is going to demand different organizations to respond.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to think about that change, isn't it? Given that almost all of us have had a shared experience in one way or another. Yeah. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about impediments to progress. Because whenever we're talking about trying to improve a situation or a system or an organization or, or ourselves, I think you and I often fall back to this issue of what's stopping this? If something's obvious that needs to change or something needs to be improved, why isn't that happening? And so almost always at the top of our list, somewhere uh, high up at least, is this idea of communication. Communication between the many levels of people involved in healthcare, but even in a broader sense when it comes to things like a pandemic, the communication that comes at a societal level and the way we treat one another, the way we talk to one another, the way we manage a crisis like this.
1: Yeah, for sure. It's one of those things that we don't realize how critical it is until it doesn't happen. Yep. The other thing that kind of goes with that is if you're not talking to each other, you don't know each other's challenges, so you can't help each other find solutions, mm-hmm. which I frame as co-producing care. And when that doesn't happen, not only does care not improve as well as it might, but people feel unheard.
0: Mm-hmm. We hear that so, so frequently, don't we, that people say, yeah. you know, I recognize there's a challenge in my institution. I recognize there's a problem in healthcare. Frankly, I recognize there's a pandemic and that we can't change that. But somebody's got to listen to this little thing that I can see that can be fixed or needs to be known about. And if somebody doesn't hear that, that's a missed opportunity.
1: Yeah. And one of the things I hear from you all the time is about supply chain challenges yeah. that I think is striking all of healthcare. It's, it's not just where
0: you work, it's everywhere. And, and, and it's way beyond healthcare. I mean, we all know that there are ships stocked up across yeah. the Pacific that, that can't get in. Um, but that really does create some practical limitations for us, which I think I understood better at the beginning of the pandemic. Of course, when you talk to supply chain experts, and we've, we've done that um, on one of our podcasts, it's understandable, but it's still unbelievable in some ways that supply chain challenges continue to be a problem in healthcare where we do need to be stockpiling stuff a little bit better. And just-in-time planning doesn't quite cut it for things that are essential healthcare products, things like local anesthesia and things like that, where we have various different things available, but we're always juggling to see what we actually have in our hand.
1: Right. What you've heard me say probably too many times is why do we let a system that is built to respond to crises depend on a supply chain that we know reliably fails in a crisis?
0: <laughs> I hate to laugh, but it's true, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So on to the next thing. What are the other impediments for well, staffing? Staffing has been a a real impediment to some of the things we need to do because when you don't have enough people to do the job, it's really hard to get the job done. It's just that simple. And we know that one in five healthcare workers has left in some way or another. Maybe they've changed jobs. Maybe they've retired. Maybe they've cut back on hours. And there are reasons for that. And it's not just that people have changed their minds and changed their priorities, although that's definitely a part of it. But one of the things that comes up is that work becomes transactional when people are dissatisfied. And so going the extra mile, staying late, staying on beyond when you uh, otherwise may have retired becomes something you do a lot less of. And we've seen that with many people.
1: Yeah, for sure. And so when people can't get the job they want to do, they at least want to get paid a lot for the job they're doing.
0: Yeah, and, and I've told you this story before, Wendy, but one of my yeah. favorite reminders of that when I worked in a restaurant in, in medical school was the guy who used to uh, clean up the trash for the restaurant nobody wants to be the trash guy who drives around town at four o'clock in the morning and cleans up the trash of, from a restaurant but he figured out since nobody wants to do that he would charge a fortune for doing it and this guy drove the nicest car in town by doing the job that nobody wanted to do and so this is what happens is people say well i'm i i, I may uh i may not uh I love what I'm doing, but guess what? I'm I'm gonna to expect to get paid a lot to do it. And then that creates a whole secondary issue of staffing, which is what happens when the healthcare system is having to pay extraordinary amounts of money to get a job done.
1: Yeah, and I, I have to say the psychiatrist in me also has this other niggling question at the back of my mind, which is, is this a way for them to express their anger at their organizations? Yeah. To say, it, i'm gonna I'm gonna get to you one way or another and mm-hmm. apparently if that needs to be through how much I charge to work, well, so be it
0: yeah I, I think that's an interesting point and I think it's something that that's worth listening to um again, yeah. this comes back to communication. if you aren't listening to people, they will find other ways to tell you that and that may be through the way they expect to be paid,
1: yeah, as we were talking earlier this week, you were on call last week and there was a The perfect storm of things that happened where patient care got really hard, not necessarily because the patients were hard, but because of volume and operations at various places were difficult.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of unpredictable things and things that I wouldn't have guessed were going to make our jobs more difficult. I thought that things would get more difficult because of supply chain as we've talked about and because of staffing, but there's a few things that were not obvious. For example, when a patient goes to an emergency room, gets seen, but is told there's a really long wait to see the the specialist, not a trivial number of those people then bounce to a different emergency room to get seen sooner. Now you've doubled the amount of work across the healthcare system. Or when somebody calls up their doctor to get in and it's going to take a long time to get onto an operating waiting list or to get an operation, it's not uncommon for someone to go and get a second opinion. Again, you have doubled the amount of work for our healthcare system. And so in many ways, by being less responsive to our patients by virtue of a system that is overstressed, we're actually snowballing the problem. We're creating an exponentially more difficult situation to be in. As people get more frustrated, they start to expect uh, more things.
1: Right. And it's certainly understandable from a patient's perspective. I'm in pain or my hand doesn't function. I, I need to get this fixed.
0: Yep. No question. No question. But uh, it, uh, it creates a double problem.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: So let's change gears for the second time. Let's talk about what we have thought about as far as some, some high-level solutions, not grassroots, you know, fix the EMR or change the seats in the waiting room, but high-level thoughts about what we can do. Right.
1: So for me, I feel like at the very foundation of any change and any move out of this pandemic is trust has to come first.
0: Agree. That
1: is job one.
0: And that's been job one for quite some time as well. Yeah. I think every time we've consulted with an organization, one of the key things that has come from both focus groups and discussions with the administration and the frontline workers and the mid level managers and the senior physicians is I don't know if I trust this person beside me. Like, how do I get to the point where we can have a working relationship? Yeah. Uh, so, absolutely, got to come first.
1: Yeah, we have to remember that every time we break trust, it takes multiple interactions to rebuild it.
0: Yeah. Got to be curious. We've got to be curious about what's wrong and what we can do about it. Sitting and accepting the status quo, I think almost all of us have accepted is not a good solution, but being curious and being a little abstract in our thinking and looking at ways that we can deal with these problems that are out of the box, I think is going to be a way out of this.
1: Yeah, and I think both of those two things, curiosity especially, will lead you to build bridges with people. And so that barrier that we talked about a few minutes ago, that we're not co-producing care, once we trust each other a little more and we're curious, that will be easier.
0: Yeah. One of my favorite things to talk about is getting rid of stupid stuff. And and there's been various (laughs) different initiatives that have been out there. And almost all of these have fallen on the same point, which is that there's a lot of stupid stuff that is out there in I mean let's call it everywhere but in medicine for sure red tape and I think both you and I listened to a really interesting broadcast recently on the power of subtraction and the idea that most of the time when we're trying to fix things we think about bringing in a new system to fix something and perhaps there's real value in taking some things away there are some things that we have in our way and some systems that are historically in place or are legacy systems that we could just do away with and would just make life a whole lot simpler. So I have been literally going through my day every day this week and thinking, is this something that we even need to do? Is this set of 13 clicks actually necessary? Or could I do one click to achieve exactly the same goal? Is this phone call to achieve a goal in the hospital necessary? Or is there a way that someone could just trust me to do it myself? Right. And... I have been fascinated to think through that. So I would encourage people who are frustrated to think through ways to subtract rather than add more to their jobs.
1: Yeah, we'll put a link to that podcast. It was a Hidden Brain podcast, but we'll put a link to it in the show notes.
0: Yeah, it was great. You know, we've talked about this as well, which is the unintended consequences of things. And I sort of alluded to that a few minutes ago. There are things that have happened in the pandemic that have had good intentions and the unintended consequences of some of the things we have done and I think this in my life personally always comes up with the EHR, which I think had very good intentions, but has uh, challenged us in many, many ways and has challenged us when it comes to providing urgent rapid care in something like a pandemic. I think we still have to address and we still have to think about, and we still have to be curious to come back to some of those systems that we've put in place and say, is this system helping us or hurting us? And what can we do to simplify it?
1: And also asking that question for things that we're proposing to put out there in the future. Yeah. So the other thing that I think we could do well to think more curiously about is a book called The Good Job Strategy, which is not written for healthcare. It's written for low margin industries. And it's written by this person called Xenopton in 2014. What she talked about was how even low margin industries like convenience stores and these big chain stores can actually profit off of investing more in their people and a lot of the recommendations that she made are kind of counterintuitive things like slightly overstaffing and ending flex time investing more money in people paying them a little bit more as they advance and get more knowledgeable so that they want to stay they're loyal they invest in the brand and actually your people become your biggest asset and your biggest proponent.
0: Yeah. This harks to an issue that we've talked about in a number of industries, and that's this idea of focusing on long-term goals rather than short-term goals. So many industries follow the finance model and look at how fast can we turn this around? How fast can I invest in this and get my money back with a return on investment? And ideally, maybe I can do that in two years. Maybe I can do it in three years at the most. And healthcare is starting to emulate that a little bit. And that's a problem because there are some things that are not going to be profitable in the short term. And something like investing in your staffing is definitely one of those things where it's going to take you years to see that return on investment, to see those staff who are loyal, to see the industry that's loyal to their staff, and to see those staff in a situation where they have become a greater asset than they were when they started. So, you know, getting back to focusing on the longer term goals is a little tricky when you're focused on finance, but it's really important in something like healthcare.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, so I I think I'm really looking forward to a little bit of break for the summer, but we'll be back with season five in August. I think we've got some really interesting guests looking forward to it.
0: Me too. As always, thank you for joining us for Moral Matters. Our producer is Dave Young at Widget Studios, and our podcast coordinator is Ariel Morton.
1: To learn more about the nonprofit Moral Injury of Healthcare, you can go to our website at fixmoralinjury.org. If you'd like to support future episodes of the podcast or any of the work we do, you can make a donation while you're
0: there. Our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram links are in the show notes so you can continue the conversation and you can help spread the word by sharing episodes with friends and colleagues. And if you'd like to subscribe and review and rate the show, that makes it easier for new listeners to find us. And please reach out to us if you have interesting guests or suggestions you have for our future podcasts.
1: Thanks for listening.
0: Stay well and enjoy the summer.